Lord, as we study your word tonight and look at uh, this message to the church in Laodicea from a really interesting standpoint. Lord, I, I thank you for what you've done in, in opening my eyes to this, and I can't wait to share it. But Lord, once again, I come just as, as me, and you know full well what that is and, and how weak that is. But Lord, I thank you that you're going you're gonna to do something neat tonight, and you're going to teach us. And I thank you for your word which is alive, and your spirit which is alive, and in this room and in us who know you as our Savior. And Lord, thank you that when we walk out of here tonight, we'll have had a chance to hear from you and not from me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 14 through 22 tonight. But I'm going to give you a little heads up. It's going to be an atypical study of the church of Laodicea because of something that God has just recently opened my eyes to uh, in this study. So I'm going to read it to you. And then we're going to talk a little historical background. And then we're going to read it again. And then we're going to go in the direction I think God wants us to head. All right, it says, To the angel of the messenger in the church of Laodicea, right? These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now you say I'm rich and I have required wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I'm going to give you a little historical background. Some of you may or may not know about this, this city, which will help you a little bit in understanding some of the imagery that Jesus uses to speak to this church. Um, Laodicea was a very, very prosperous city for many reasons. One of them was uh, they had actually a, a certain type of sheep that had black wool that was raised in that area. And, and, the, and the wool that came from these black sheep was so rich and the texture was soft and people from all over the world would come to get their garments made from this type of wool. It was a very, very uh, expensive and it made the, made the city very, very prosperous. At the same time, there was a very uh, well-known medical center in the city of Laodicea. Uh, unfortunately, there was a, it, was, it was housed in this temple to a foreign god, you know. Uh, Menkaru is the god that it was, uh, the temple was made to. But in that temple, there was a medical center, and there they came up with an ISAV that actually was very, very helpful. Back in that day, because of the dry conditions of, of that area and because of the sanitary conditions of that time, people got a lot of eye infections, as you would expect. And they actually had come up with this ISAV. It was some kind of a mineral thing that they would, they would kind of form into a little tap, a roll, if you will, and they'd cut off a piece and grind it up and then mix it with water, and it made an eye salve they would put on people's eyes. And people came from all over to get this eye ointment uh, from the city of Laodicea. Uh, because of many other reasons, uh, their, their commercial industry and all the different things, they were extremely prosperous. So much so that the same earthquakes that hit Sardis and Philadelphia that destroyed those two cities also hit Laodicea and destroyed the, the, that city as well. Now the Romans, who were kind of helping out and governing in a lot of areas at this time, the Romans offered help to Sardis and to Philadelphia, these two cities, to help rebuild, and they accepted it. The Laodiceans did not accept the help from Rome. They had, their attitude was, we got enough money, we can rebuild ourselves, we don't need your help. And so 
that's a very helpful thing for help us understand it as we reread it in just a second. One other thing is, is interesting is this. The water supply for the city of Laodicea actually came from a spring five miles to the south of the city. And it ran in underground aqueducts during that five miles all the way to the city. By the time it got to the city after traveling five miles underground, it was tepid. It was lukewarm. And it was dirty. All right. Now, just to the east of Laodicea, ten miles to the east, is the city of Colossae. And you all know Colossae, because that's the, remember Paul wrote the letter to the church in Colossae, the Colossians. Ten miles to the east of Laodicea was Colossae, and they had cool mountain streams that would actually give them their water supply, and their water was cold. North of the city, about six miles to the north, was the city of Hierapolis. They had actually hot springs, and actually they would, the hot springs would run under the main roads in that area, and steam would rise, it was so hot. And actually, when it did come up out of the ground, it made a white kind of minerally uh, uh, residue, if you will. And you could actually see the white-capped hills of Hierapolis. And so north of the city, you got the hot springs. East of the city, you got the cool water. And their water was tepid, coming five miles from the south to be where they are. Now, with that in mind, let's reread Jesus' message. Now, Jesus knows where we are. He knows what's going on. And Jesus is, is a master, if you will, at speaking to each one of us where we are. He'll take our situations in life, He'll take circumstances, He'll take what's going on around us, and He'll use them sometimes to speak right to what He wants to deal with. So with all that in mind, listen to what He says again now to this church. He's trying to get their attention. He says, This is the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. We'll come back to that in a little bit. He said, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Using the water situation, he uses that analogy. He said, you say I'm rich and have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, which was the attitude of the city, but it was also the attitude of the, of the church. Yet you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, purified gold, if you will, so that you can become rich. And what? White clothes. Now, why would he say white clothes? Well, the Bible forever is talking about white robes as representing righteousness, but what was it a play on? The water is dirty, then the clothes are dirty. The water is dirty, the clothes are dirty. What else were they known for? Black wool. Black wool. And then he says, and what? So you can clothe yourself in what? Keep going. And salve for your eyes so you can see. What they were famous for, he said, I want you to get the salve I have. Even though you guys are famous for your salve, you're blind to your real condition. Alright? Now the spiritual condition of this church, and I want you to hear me very clearly, the spiritual condition of this church is dead. They're not Christians. Okay? They claim to be Christians, but they're not. They say they're part of the church, but they're not Christians. They're not spiritually saved. Okay? Now, how do you say, how do you know that? Well, look at how he describes them. First of all, there's no commendation to this church at all. Even in some of these churches that he was giving them quite a spanking. Go back to Sardis in chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 1 and following. Uh, he talks about the words of the seven spirits, and one has the spirits, seven spirits of God. I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. In other words, there's still hope for you. But here, then he goes on to say in verse 4, yet I have few, you have a few people there in Sardis who haven't soiled their clothes. you got some hope. But the message to the church in Laodicea, there's no commendation at all. 
And he describes them as wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And oh, by the way, those are all descriptions of lostness. They are not Christians. Now, he's calling for them to, re- to repent. And where is he standing as he does so? He's at the door, which means what? He's not inside. He's at the outside. Here he is speaking to a spiritually dead church. He's hopes and hopes that they'll respond. So what we're going to do now is we're going to now move away from this study here, specifically of really looking at these verses in Revelation, and I'm going to take you to an interesting study that God just recently has just showed me as to the reasons why Laodicea got into this condition. And we could easily speculate, but actually I've come to realize that the answer to what happened to Laodicea can be found in the book of Colossians. So turn to the book of Colossians. We're going to start in chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. At the end of his letter, he says to the church in Colossians, remember this is ten miles to the east of Laodicea, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at what? At Laodicea. And where? Hierapolis, the three cities we talked about. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus... See to it that you complete uh, the work you have received in the Lord. And I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. It's very obvious here from Paul's ending of this letter to the church in Colossae that what he was dealing with in the church in Colossae was also an issue that needed to be dealt with in Laodicea. So what he deals with in the church in Colossae, he says, now, please make sure that this letter gets to Laodiceans. They need to hear this too. So what we need to do tonight is we need to take a look at the study of Colossians briefly and see what was the issue that Paul was dealing with in Colossae that also was happening in Laodicea. And in doing so, you're going to find how the Laodiceans ended up in the condition they did as their church and how they ended up spiritually dead. And it's going to be a caution and a wake-up call for all of us as well so we can see how we ended up there or how they ended up there and so we don't end up there. So go over to chapter 2. All right, we're going to look at chapter 2. Uh, look at verse 1 real quick. Paul says, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and what? And for those of Laodicea. Now, let's be honest. I'm going to be straight up with you, folks. I have studied the book of Colossians. I have taught the book of Colossians. I have never seen how much Laodicea is mentioned in the book of Colossians. Until just recently as I was preparing for these Bible studies. It just was jumping off the page at me. Now, 
Paul is struggling for them and the church in Laodicea because of some false teaching that has crept in. Now, remember earlier in Revelation we saw how Jesus described himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the, the ruler of God's creation? Back earlier in chapter 1, Paul goes into great detail to explain that Jesus is the one who created the world. Go, go real quick to uh, uh, verse 15. He says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And by the way, that doesn't mean He was the first one born. It doesn't mean He's the first in a long line. It simply means He's the ruler of it, is what it means. He's, he's the ruler of all creation because Jesus was not created. Okay, Jesus is God. He has always existed. All right, For by Him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him and for Him. He, Jesus, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Alright, then he goes on to talk to the head of the body. That's chapter 1, verses 15 and following there. Here, Paul is illustrating to them the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And you're about to see why he says to the church of Colossae, and talks to them about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. But it's also very interesting that Jesus, knowing that this letter had been sent to them and to the Laodiceans, he describes himself again as the ruler of creation. I'm the one who made it all. Alright? So now, look at, let's see what he says to them. I want you to know, chapter 2 now, verse 1, Paul says, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In Him you were also circumcised, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith in the power of God, who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though, do, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use. 
because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Keep reading with me until verse 4 of chapter 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Now, we're going to take some time now to break this down. And I'm going to help you out with that. I've made a few notes here to kind of break down what it is he's dealing with. The first thing I want you to see is going back to chapter 2, looking at uh, verse number 2 and 3. Paul wanted them to have a clear understanding of their full position in Christ. Look again at what he's saying here in verses 2 and 3. It says, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and be united in love, so they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, he goes on to say. So what is he wanting us to have? He's wanting us to have complete understanding of what? Of Christ, of who Christ is, and not only that, of who we are in Christ. Until Christians really understand what has been accomplished through Jesus Christ and who we are in Christ, we will be susceptible to a lot of stuff that will pull us away from Christ. All right. Now, look at what he says in verse nine. Uh, sorry, verse verse eight. See to it, no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, and so on. And then in verse nine, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ. Alright? Do you need anything more? No. Do you need a second filling? No. Do you need to take a course in order to be better, a better Christian? No. You don't need all. You have Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that He's not going to work on you to make you more in His image and conform you to His image. But there are many of us that have been kind of, in many different ways, taught that, okay, you got salvation, but now you need this too. Folks, go to, put a bookmark here in Colossians, go to 2 Peter chapter 1, and someone read for us verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Alright. His divine power has given us what? Everything. Everything. When you got saved, when you accepted Christ as your Savior and He forgave you of your sins and He gave you His Spirit, all of Jesus Christ came to indwell you. And oh, by the way, Jesus is fully God. And He's in you. Now it's a matter of you coming to understand Jesus more and your relationship with Jesus Christ. But too many of us have been taught that outward things are going to help us get closer to God. And it's not outward things that are going to help you get closer to God. It's Jesus Himself. Now, His working in our lives will manifest themselves in outward things, but it works from the inside out. Not, I'm going to try to do outward things in hopes to get closer to God. No, I'm going to be obedient to Jesus Christ, and that will affect the outward actions. Do you understand the difference? 
Because it's very important that you, if you don't, you've got to be willing to just say, well, I'm not quite sure here. Because it's very important that you get this. Because I'm about to show you in Paul's teaching here in Colossians that a lot of stuff that we've done in our church actually fall into these areas of false teaching. But they're subtle and we don't know it. So let me show you what I'm talking about. First thing he wants them to understand is a clear understanding of their full position in Christ. See, they're being pulled away from a firm faith in Christ by fine-sounding arguments, as you see there in verse uh, 4 and 5. He said, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Folks, let me just tell you, there's a lot of things being taught out there today that are not lined up with the truth of Scripture, but they make sense. And we get sucked into things because we listen to fine-sounding arguments instead of the truth of the Word of God. What's the only way you're going to be unable to be deceived by fine-sounding arguments? You've got to know the Word. But you've got to know the Word. Not just, I'm pretty good at this book. You know, i got, I got this book. No, you need to know the whole of Scripture. That's why whenever we run across uh, certain passages that we wrestle over, typically if you're willing to look at the whole of Scripture, the answer is there. But many people start building their doctrines or building their teachings on a certain verse, and they, think they take it in a certain direction. But if you're willing to compare it to the whole of Scripture, the meaning of the passage becomes clear. But very few people really know the Word of God really well. And now, it, it's a sad thing. But... In this day and age, there's a lot of false teachers out there, the Bible says. Especially in the last days, there's going to be doctrines taught by demons. You're never going to know. I could be teaching you stuff that's not true. The only way you'll know if it's true is if you examine it according to the Word of God. And so my challenge to you is, spend time in it each day. Just, not because that will make you a better Christian in the sense that God will be pleased with you, but it'll just it'll be where you start getting... Well, it's kind of inoculizing you. Is that the word? Inoculize? Inoculate? Inoculate, I guess? To keep you from, 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 uh, from, from getting disease, if you will. You get, it, it'll help you out in that way. It's chicken soup, if you will, I guess, is the best way to put it. All right? So these fine-sounding arguments, though, they used um, three different things. Look closely at what they are. Uh, if you go on to verses, verse 8. See, see, when no one takes you decept, uh, captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. I know a lot of people that have misunderstanding of the Scriptures. They have a misunderstanding of the Scriptures and they don't... Verse 8 of chapter 2. Did I say... Yeah, what, what did I say? Oh, sorry. Oh, Colossians chapter 2. Yeah, chapter 2, verse 8. Alright? It says that... Uh, see to it, no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Going back to those fine-sounding arguments right now, I know of some churches that are dealing with some issues that are not scriptural, but the people are using a verse of scripture, and then they're using logic to build a doctrine. Well, if this is this, then it must be this, and it must be this, and it must be this. But when the scriptures doesn't teach that. And so you've got to be real careful that what they show you matches up with the whole of scripture, not, well, I see, that makes sense. No, no, I'm not going to say it's not all makes sense. When Jesus turned to the disciples, uh, the twelve, after many of his disciples walked away in John 6, because he had just said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Many of them didn't understand it. didn't make sense to them. They're like, he wants us to eat his flesh and drink his blood? This is a hard teaching. Who can understand this? And they left. Jesus turned to the twelve and he said, do you guys want to go too? You're free to go. And Peter says, well, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Did Peter understand them? No, he didn't have a clue. But he knew they were truth. 
So don't get sucked into things that seem to make sense, but don't line up with Scripture. And there will be those that will use fine-sounding arguments and philosophy to try to win their, their case. Again, you need the whole of Scripture. second thing you have is human traditions. Now, folks, I want to spend a little bit of time here for a minute. Because, unfortunately, this is actually one of the things we see in our churches today. How many of you, by a show of hands, and you're on tape, so no one will know who you are. How many, by a show of hands, uh, were raised to teach that Sunday is the Sabbath, and you weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath? But you know what? Look again here at verse uh, 16. It says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality is found in Christ. Actually, if you study the whole of Scripture, you'll find that the Sabbath was made for the nation of Israel. It was a sign for the nation of Israel to mark them as God's people. Now, the Bible talks about that there's the principle of the Sabbath, that it's a very good thing to have rest once a week and all that. But actually, God is not measuring whether or not that we keep a Sabbath in that sense. Actually, Sabbath was a Saturday. It wasn't a Sunday. But it wasn't for the Christian church. Here the scripture says that that's not what they were supposed to be doing. And all. I remember as a kid, we were taught that you weren't allowed to go out to eat on Sunday because it's the Sabbath and you're not allowed to work. Uh, we weren't allowed to read the funny papers until afternoon on Sunday. you know. And I remember one time, actually, when I was a, a, a teenager and I was working at a grocery store, one Sunday they scheduled me to work and I went into work about 3 o'clock. And uh, this lady came through the grocery line, and I was bagging her groceries up, and she recognized that I was the preacher's kid, because my dad was pastor of a church in that town. And she said, aren't you the preacher's kid? And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, what are you doing working on Sunday? You're not supposed to be working on Sunday. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. And I started taking her groceries out of her bag and putting them back on the counter. And she goes, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I said, well, I shouldn't be doing this. And she said, well, I want you to bag mine. You know? Why was she shopping? Yeah, well, see, here's the whole thing. This is a tradition that we've all been taught, but it really didn't line up with Scripture. And that's why we need to know the whole of Scripture. We have to be real careful. There are a lot of things that are actually human tradition that the Scripture don't, doesn't make mandatory. Again, there's value in a Sunday night worship service, but to be really honest with you, there's nowhere in Scripture says that you have to meet on Sunday night. Yet how many people have judged their brothers and sisters or other churches because they didn't have a Sunday night service? Consider them lesser Christians. Now again, please don't hear me. I'm not saying that every church shouldn't have a Sunday night service. What I'm saying is we have to be real careful that things that we have done don't become measurements for true faith. Those aren't the fruit. We have to be real careful about human traditions. Jesus even talked about the Pharisees. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain they worship me. All their things they do are just rules taught by men. And there are those that creep into the church that say, if you're going to be a good Christian, you'll do these things. And if you don't know the Word, you'll be in bondage. You'll be in bondage. There's another one here. Not just human tradition, but also the basic principles of this world. And we don't need to take a lot of time there. Hopefully you're open enough, wise enough to see, wait a minute, that's how the world does it. That's not what the Word teaches. We don't need to go down that road, hopefully. You'll be able to recognize the things of the world versus the things of the Lord. So, But what had happened in the church in Colossae was false teachers had crept in and they started to pull people away from being centered on Jesus Christ. 
and other things became measurements for their Christianity. Other things became more important, and he started teaching using fine. They started teaching using fine-sounding arguments, philosophy, tradition, principles of this world, and we got sucked into it. Now I say we. Because not only did the Church of Colossae get sucked into it, not only did Laodicea get sucked into it, we're still wrestling with those issues today. We wrestle with those issues today. Alright? So let's look at what's happening even more than that. Go to verse 16. Paul warned them about those who were imposing dietary restrictions on them. Someone read verse 16 for us. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival. Okay. Now these there's nothing wrong with, with, with healthy eating. There's nothing wrong with under the leadership of the Spirit, God showing you how He wants you to eat, what He wants you to drink. Alright? The Bible even talks about being careful in that that we don't cause our brother to stumble in how we do these things. But what they were teaching was if you want to get closer to God, you gotta not you can't eat these things. And they started, but didn't the Old Testament have dietary restrictions? For a reason. Didn't, didn't. There's lots of reasons. One of them was for health reasons, you know, there were those. But actually, if you look at the scripture, there came a point where Jesus actually made all foods clean. Scripture literally says, when Jesus did this, he declared all foods clean. Then later on, you know, Peter has the vision of all these unclean animals, and God says, what I've called clean, don't call unclean. He had already declared them clean when he walked on the earth at that point. And I want you to understand that, that there are those who will try to, through dietary restrictions, say, the Bible says you have to or else you're not going to be a good... The Bible doesn't. It doesn't. Yes, go ahead. What is kosher? Kosher was what was approved by the rabbis according to the Old Testament law. Now, unfortunately, the rabbis then started adding to what God had said. And, you know, I mean, it's just like, for example, human A. Well, they would, they would say, well, let's take the law of the Sabbath, for example. God's law was for the nation of Israel. They weren't to do any work on the Sabbath. Well, then the, 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 the rabbis would say, and, the, and the, the scribes and the lawmakers would say, um, well, what, what constitutes work? And they started setting up, well, if you take so many steps from your dwelling... Uh, say it's 18 steps, the 19th step will be work. Or you're not allowed to carry a burden on the Sabbath. They even had a law that said you can't tie a knot unless it could be untied with one hand uh, on the Sabbath. You could tie a knot that took two hands to tie on the Sabbath, I mean on another day, but on the Sabbath you could only tie a knot that could be untied with one hand. And They started to come up with all these extra rules. And that's why when Jesus was on the earth and they were saying, how come he doesn't keep the Sabbath? He's healing on the Sabbath. And you're, you know, and they walked through the grain field and they took the grain and they they, they ate it. That means he harvested and he winnowed and he, and he you know, they working on... And Jesus said, you still don't get it. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Go ahead. When I was with Tony in Israel over the uh, Passover, they had to shut the elevators down because they weren't allowed to push the button on the elevator. That's work. That was considered work. Yes. There are those who... Now again, for the nation of Israel, they still, if they haven't come to Christ, they're still under the Old Testament law. They still are. But what does this say? These were a shadow of what was to come. They were all pointing to Jesus Christ. Now that He's come, we've got fullness in Christ. We're not being judged anymore by whether or not we keep the law. We're free in Jesus Christ. An illustration I used today with the guys at the lunch lunch that I, I speak at was 
You remember back when and, and your, your wife was pregnant and she went for a sonogram and they gave you a little picture? You know? I still this day still have a hard time knowing, you know, that's the head, I trust you. You know, they said, you know, look, he's waving at you or something. I, I don't know. But we used to carry that around. Back when Becky was pregnant with our kids, we used to show everybody, look, there's, you know, it. We don't know if it's boy or girl yet. But, but when the baby came, you, you didn't carry that around as much anymore, did you? How foolish would it be to ignore the baby and to keep showing everybody that picture of the sonogram? That's dumb. Why? This was a shadow of what was to come. The reality has now come. That's been put aside. We enjoy the real thing. That's what it is. So we have to be real careful because a lot of this stuff makes sense. I mean, human reason. I mean, why would? For example, let me give you an example of one. There are those who judge you on how you dress to go to church, right? And I've even, for years, grew up under the the human reasoning that said. Well, if you're going to go meet with the President of the United States, you would dress up, would you not? Well, if you're going to go meet with God, wouldn't you do the same? Well, for years, yeah, for years, I, I thought, well, that makes sense. And was under that bondage, if you will, of I've got to dress a certain way. And then it hit me. Wait a minute. If I was best friends with the President of the United States, and I saw him every day, chances are I wouldn't. But then again... Why would I even try to use human reasoning to refute human reasoning? What does, this, does the Scripture say? That I'm to dress in a certain way? Actually, the Bible says that when I come to worship, I'm to be dressed in a certain way that doesn't draw attention to me. That's all it teaches. It teaches that about women. If you look at it, about the braided hair and the gold and all these types of things, it was simply saying that women should not come to worship dressed in a way that calls attention to them. And the man need to come with holy hands. What does the Bible teach about how we're to dress and how we're to appear at church? We're to come in such a way that we don't draw attention to ourselves. It doesn't say whether or not it's supposed to be a tie or whether or not it has to be you know, matching shoes and these types of things. Little by little, these things creep in and we start using them as measurements for whether or not we're a good Christian. When they don't really line up with the Scripture, and stick with me, you'll see the danger of what will happen to a church if it continues down that road. But let's look at the next one here. All right? He then in verse 18, well, as you also just saw, we don't need to go into that more. The rest of verse 16, false teachers have been teaching that Christians needed to follow religious festivals and other feasts. But Paul said they were just a shadow of what was to come. Alright, verse 18. Someone read verse 18 for us. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. All right. Well, there's two things here that were being taught in the church in Colossae. The first one we need to deal with is these false teachers had, an, had false humility. Now, if you're not sure what that is, false humility is pretending to be something you're not. Okay? Because you, you, if I have false humility, am I fooling God? No. But I could fool you. False humility is living your life in such a way as to appear to be something to man that you're not. All right, It can take on many different shapes and forms, but to be really honest with you, false humility is pride. False humility is pride. You're trying to put, put forth an image that's really not who you really are. Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira, perfect example of it. 
They weren't in sin for keeping back some of the money. It was all theirs. Peter said, look, when this was yours, you could do whatever you wanted. And after you sold the land, it was still your money to deal with. What they did was they pretended that it was the whole amount. It's a false humility. Oh, look how humble we are. We give our whole amount. But they were keeping some. When we try to put forth an image that is not us, not the real thing, we're trying to live for man's eyes, not for God's, there's a false humility. And Paul said, these people that are teaching that, this is who they are. Watch out for them. Well, by the way, how are you ever going to know whether or not I am living just to put forth an image or whether or not that's the real me? Sometimes the Spirit gives us discernment. But how else? Spending time. Spending time. You see, because of how we've made church, those of you who know my teaching on the eight principles of a God-centered church, number four is getting back to biblical fellowship. The only way you're ever going to really know what I'm really like is to spend much time with me. And the early church, actually, that's what they did. They met every day in the temple courts. And stop laughing. All right? And uh, um, so she goes, I know you. I know you. But the fact that they're sitting here shows you what you see is what you get. But what I want you to see is the early church spent time in each other's homes. Every day they met in the temple courts. They ate together. They, as I've said before, when you get to know people on this level, you'll know whether or not they drink whole milk or whether or not they drink 2%. You'll know whether or not they have a cat box that needs to be changed. Do you know what I'm saying? Because we'll get to know each other on that level. And you can't keep up the phoniness. But you know what? We've made church when we get together at a certain building. And we all dress ourselves up and we put on the front. Hello, brother. Hello, sister. How are you? Fine. And we never really get to know. We know where you sit. We know what parking space is yours. You know, we know whose watch goes off at 12 o'clock to remind the preacher. But we, we really don't know each other. And the only way you're going to know whether or not someone is a phony is to spend much time together. But we don't do that today, and it's easy for us to put on the act. It's easy for us to put on the act. Stained glass masquerade. Yep. So before you leave, check out Debbie's fridge. <laughs> Go through the rooms. But there's a second thing here, not just the false humility and living for the eyes of man but not God, but also the false teachers are uh, taught relying on personal experience. Got to be real careful about this, folks. There are those today, I think the church today, let me say it this, this way, I think the church today needs to understand the Spirit more than they do. Because of those who are out there teaching things that are not biblical when it comes to the Spirit of God, the church today, especially in a lot of Baptist circles which I run in, they tend to avoid things of the Spirit, to avoid becoming like those people that we think are wacky. But unfortunately, we have ignored the true fact that the Bible talks about the leadership of the Spirit. The Spirit told Paul to not go into Asia, but to go here. The Spirit told Philip to go over to the chariot. God leads us by His Spirit. We need to know His Word, but we also need to know what His Spirit is showing us how to apply the truth of the Word. All right, But there are those who will talk about these experiences they've had with God. And they will base their life and their doctrine on these experiences. And when the experiences don't line up with the Word of God, you've got to be real careful. And look at verse 18 again. If you want to read it again for us, Becky, listen to verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. When I came down to uh, First Baptist in the Atlantic nine years ago now, uh, 
to be the pastor, um, another pastor of a church in the area, uh, which was running into realms that were unbiblical. Uh, I had heard that he was going to try to come and get me to join his movement. Uh, he invited me to lunch within the first week of me being pastor. And uh, we went. I went to lunch with him. We sat down, and he was telling me about all the stuff going on at his church, and he wanted me to join with him. And I, I looked him in the eye, and I said to him, I said, look, everything you're explaining and you're saying is happening, I don't see it in the Scriptures. This was his answer to me. He said, I know it's not in the Bible, but when it happens to you, you'll know that there's nothing else you can do but believe it. Folks, that's dangerous. That is very, very dangerous. And it's going to pull you away from the head, which is Jesus Christ. So, now wait a minute. Some of you could say, wait a minute. What about 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Didn't Paul talk about his personal experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Let's go there. Some of you might not know what I'm talking about. Some of you may. But let's take a look at this. So here's the writer of the book of Colossae saying, watch out for these people to tell you about all their, you know, the things they have seen. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. Listen to what it says. Now, have to understand the context. In this context, Paul is dealing with the church that's now questioning whether or not he's really an apostle. Well, not he really has the authority to tell them what to do and how to live their lives and whether or not they're lining up with the Word of God. They're questioning his apostleship. Alright? So Paul's been going into great detail about all that he's been through for the cause of Christ. And in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Now, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But, if, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Now to keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, he's gone into great detail to say, I know a man, uh, whether he's in the body or out of the body, I don't know, uh, but I know this man that got to see heaven. And he's trying, to act, he's trying not to let on that it was him. But then he goes in verse 7 and says, to keep me from being conceited because of what I saw, uh, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, and three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Yes, Paul did have a personal experience. He did have a vision. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, he doesn't know at this time. And he got to see heaven. But does Paul ever tell us what he saw? Never did. He wasn't permitted to even share what he saw. And because of that, so that he wouldn't fall into that category of people saying, you better listen to me because I've seen heaven and oh, it's beautiful. And God gave him a thorn in the flesh. And we still to this day don't even know what it was. But God gave him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger, tormenting from Satan, if you will, to keep him humble. Three times he begged God to take it away, and God says, no, I'm leaving it there to keep you humble, to keep you where I want you to be. So Paul full well knows about those who would say, hey, I had this experience. Go ahead. Why do you call it the third heaven? 
Third heaven? That's a great question. In the mindset of the Jews, the earth is here. They knew that there was the first heaven where the birds flew, right? And then they felt that there was another heaven, the second heaven, where the stars were. They could tell that the birds never made it that high. But they also believed that where God was, was beyond that. The third heaven. First heaven is where the birds are. Second heaven, if you will, is where the stars are. Beyond that is where God was, the third heaven. So that's why they called it that. They called it the third heaven, and then he also later described it paradise. He was taken into the presence of God. So, did Paul have a personal experience? Yes. Does God give people experiences? Yes. But don't ever base your doctrine, don't ever base your life on the experience if it doesn't line up with the Word of God. And there are those out there who are basing everything on their experience. Remember just recently, within the last year, there was this movement out in Lakeland. Remember? This guy, he's preaching from all these visions, and he saw this, and he had this happen, and fire was running through this hotel, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, in time, it came to be proven very, very dangerous, and very, very false, and a whole lot of mess came out of it. But so many people got sucked into it, didn't they? Because they threw a little bit of truth in there. They threw a little bit of truth. Just enough to get you sucked in. See, this is why you need to know, folks. These things are dangerous. And if you don't know, you could get sucked into it because it looks so good. Alright? Jim, how do you line that up with does God not give us modern day prophets with a prophetic voice? My understanding of the scripture is that modern day prophets are those who are able to take the word of God and speak it powerfully to a situation that's going on right now. Not change the not, word of God. Not change the word of God. Definitely. And also... I don't believe that God needs, because of the dwelling Holy Spirit, that God needs me to say, I got a word for you from God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Those who say, God has given me, I had a, a dream and I need to share with you what God told me to tell you. Whenever someone tries that with me, I'm humble enough to say, you know, thank you. I'm going to put that in the back of my mind and if God ever says it, then I might listen to what you're saying. But I've got a personal relationship with the Lord. He doesn't need to tell you something to tell me. So that's not what the word prophet talks about. Yet, for example, not knowing who was going to be there at a luncheon that I was speaking at today, I was teaching on this passage, not in the detail we are now, but I was teaching on this, and God's Spirit, I could tell, was just telling me to go here to a certain way, and I hit it hard. When it was over, there were two guys in the parking lot that were waiting for me, and they said, thank you. That was exactly what we were talking about, and they'd never been there before. It was their first time showing up. And they showed up, and they said, we had been wrestling over this one issue. Right before we got here, we walked in, and you spoke right to where we are. And said word for word what we needed to hear. Thank you. I was a prophet today. But not because I said, I've got a new revelation from God for you. Avoid those kind of people. Be very careful of those kind of people. They will do damage. They'll take a little bit of information and then they'll give a word from God. He's given us His word. He's given us His spirit. You've received fullness in Christ. You don't need a prophet to give you a, a word from God. you understand? But are there prophets in the church? Yes. But they're the ones who can teach and preach the Word of God and it nails the situation right then and there. We've heard a prophetic word from God, but it was the Word of God being taught, not, I've got a, a word. You understand what I'm saying? Is that more exhortation? Than... It's more exhortation, definitely. Definitely. There's teaching, there's exhortation, there, there's, there's all different kinds. You just have to be careful of anybody who says, I've got something that's straight from God and you've never heard anything like this before, but I know it's from God because... Um, of the warning in the, at the end of the book of Revelation that says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, 
God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And really we've had several cults that have developed because they said, well, there's been a new revelation and this is added to what's already given in Scripture. And it can take a couple of moments. Yeah. And so we have to be really careful not to let anybody's word be taken at the level of Scripture. These people right. are so hungry for the word that they will... You know what? You know, I, I literally, I watched, was because of, because of what I do, I looked into what was going on in Lakeland, and I grieved, and I hurt for those people sitting there. I watched the video of these crowds, and I literally cried as I watched, and I thought, these people are so hungry. They're so hungry, and they're being fed by false teachers. And there's enough truth that it does satisfy to some extent, because there's that tiny grain. There's a grain. They're, they're hungry, but lazy. They want somebody to. They want the magic pill for them and get the instant answers without doing any work. Another real sad thing that I've come across on Christian radio is this thing called Prophecy Club. And this man and woman pray that God will reveal all truth in prophecy, and they will sell you that. Huh? <laughs> yeah, it's out there. It's out there. It's out there. All right. Let's go back to Revelation now. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 3. This letter that we just read in Colossians, and a little bit of it, was to be sent to the church in Colossae, and it was also to be sent to the church of Laodicea, warning them of all this stuff. But now, Jesus is writing to the church in Laodicea, and He said, you're lost. You're not saved. Did the Laodiceans lose their salvation? No, the answer is not they didn't have it. Well, in a sense, it is not they didn't have it. What will help you is to understand this. This letter written to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 was written 40 years after the letter to the church in Colossae that was to be read. So at the time that the the letter that we read from Colossae, which was to be handed on to the Laodicean church, was sent to them, there were believers in that church. But what happened to the church over a generation? That false teaching didn't get dealt with, and the church died. Now folks, I do this for a living. I go around and speak to many different churches, and most of them are ones that are struggling, and a lot of them are dying. And you know why? Because they're hanging on to human traditions. They're fighting over fine-sounding arguments. They're using the principles of this world instead of Christ. And they think they're okay because they're... I went to this one church. I'm not going to tell you what denomination it was. But they asked me to come and speak to their leadership. It was a group of 40 people. Actually, sorry, 20 people. There were 20 people in this room. They asked me to come speak to their leadership. And as I sat down to meet with them, I understood that in order for me to communicate the Word of God, I needed to know the spiritual level of where these people were, because that will determine how I teach it. You know, So if you were going to go substitute teach, wouldn't you say, well, am I teaching 5th graders, 12th graders? Yeah. You know, I want to prepare my lesson accordingly. So I told them that. I said, I don't know you, you don't know me. I want to know whether I'm teaching 5th graders, 12th graders. Could you just real quickly go around the room and just tell me, how did you come to know Christ? 80% of the people in that room, this is what they said to me, and they were leadership in this church. I've always been a Christian. 
I've been a member of this church for so many years. When I asked them, how did you come to know Jesus Christ? When did you trust Him as your Savior? How did you get saved? 80% of them, their answer was, well, I've always gone to this church. And they think they're okay. Their faith was in their effort. It wasn't in Jesus Christ. Folks, I can look you in the eye and say, I know I'm going to heaven when I die. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I've been a preacher. It has everything to do that back in 1973, even though I grew up in a Christian home, even though my dad was a preacher, even though I was there on the times when everybody else didn't show up because the snow was too deep. You know, I was there every time the door was open, and even if they couldn't get to church because of the snow, we had church at home because my mom was the pianist and my dad was the preacher, so we had all we needed. And uh, even, even though I grew up in that kind of a home, in 1973, at a local high school, when an evangelist came into that town to give an evangelistic rally, the Spirit of God opened my eyes to the fact that even though I knew a lot of the Bible and had been to church, there was something I needed to do personally. And I trusted Jesus as my Savior, and He forgave my sins, and He's come to live within me. The issue is, is Jesus in you? I'm not asking you, did you pray a prayer? I'm not asking, did you, were you baptized? I'm not asking, have you been faithful in church? I'm asking, is Jesus in you? Write this down later on and you can go double check me. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. It literally says this, Examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. I'm going to say it again. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? Is Jesus in you? That's the measuring stick. Has He come to indwell you? And I'm going to show you a couple of things that I want you to see. Go to John chapter 2. And then we're going to wrap up with some really exciting things that will set us up for next week. But go to John chapter 2. Now I'm going to ask you to look at verse 23. Don't read verse 24. If you read verse 24, there'll be a there'll be a public spanking. Alright? Look, don't read verse 24. Look at verse 23. It says, Now while he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Now most of us, if we just read that verse, we think these people were believers, right? Look at what the next verse says. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He didn't need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. They believed, but Jesus didn't seal the deal. Why? Because he knew it wasn't real faith. It was a false belief. Let me show you another one. Go to chapter 12 of John. Verses 42 and 43. said, yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in Him. Talking about Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Were these people saved? No. Jesus said, if you deny Me before men, I'll deny you before My Father. What is He looking for? 
Real faith says, not only do I believe, I'm going to tell everybody that I believe. I'm not going to be ashamed. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. Not only do I believe, I confess. Not only do I believe, I get baptized to show everybody that I believe. My baptism doesn't get me into heaven. My faith in Jesus Christ does, but it's going to manifest itself in an outward life. Jesus is in me, and I believe. And God knows your heart. So guys, girls, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? Is Jesus in you? And if He is... There's actually some good news in Revelation chapter 3 to the message in the church in Laodicea. Look at what he says next. Look at the commendation starting in verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Now I'm going to say that again because I don't think any of us, myself included, even have a clue to how awesome that is. To him who overcomes... I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Now, wait a minute. Before we go any further, some of you are saying, wait a minute, Jim. You said there were no Christians in that church. You're right. But wasn't he calling them to repent? Wasn't there a chance that they would come to faith? Remember, who's an overcomer? He who believes that Jesus is the Christ. That's an overcomer. The one who believes Jesus is who he is. Interestingly enough, he also says here at the end, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is. This wasn't just written to the Laodiceans. What if nobody in Laodicea repented and nobody came to faith? This message and this promise is still for those who are in the church. For those of us who believe. Just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne, we're going to be able to sit with Jesus on His throne. Now, that's your commercial for next week. Next week we're going to be starting into chapter 4 and we're about to see at the end of the church age what's going to start happening after that. Paul's, I mean, John's taken up into the into heaven and he sees now all this stuff starting to go on. We really start breaking down Revelation and you're going to see 24 elders sitting, sitting on thrones around the throne of God. And I'm going to show you scripturally how we can know that the 24 elders is the church ruling and reigning with Christ. I'm going to show you so many scriptures it's going to make your head spin that the Bible's been teaching all along that we're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. The 24 elders around the throne is the church. Further evidence that the church is going to be taken out before the opening of the seals in the book of tribula- in, in, in the Great Tribulation. So I just want you to just kind of chew on that one tonight. We're going to be able to rule and reign with Jesus. I, I'll be honest with you, that's, that's just baffling. But the Bible says it's going to happen. He must know something about me I don't know. You know? I, I don't want to rule. <laughs> I don't want to reign. Uh, yet, He's going to make it possible. He's going to shape me. and He's going to use me. And when it's that time, I'm not only going to love it, I'm going to be capable of doing it. Aren't you sort of doing it now? In a sense, we are. Now you're talking Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. We're already seated in the heavenly realms. Yes, you're right. And, and yes. I think we should. I think we should. Yeah. That's why I say I want you to go home and think about it and chew on it. Let God speak to your heart. How about that for a study of Laodicea? I've never looked at it from that angle before. 
Never looked at it that angle before. And it just makes so much more sense. You could see how the church ended up spiritually dead. They put their faith in things besides Christ. Thought they were doing good. That must mean then that the uh, believers that were there back in Washington must have left. Either left or died. Either passed away and gone on to heaven. 40 or years, that's a lifetime for yeah. that time. Yeah. Remember back then they didn't they, they didn't live that long. So 40 years later, those believers in the church went to Colossians, they got to left. They either went to a different church. And sometimes that has to happen. Sometimes when a church decides, I, I'm uh, I'm not going to say which one, but I, I know of a church just recently, I won't tell you what state we're in either, uh, we're talking about, but a, uh, a whole all the staff, all the pastoral staff resigned at the same time. Wow. All at once. And they had been there for ten years. And this is what they said. They said, for ten years we have tried to turn this ship around, speaking of the church, and to have it go in God's direction, lining up with His Word and following the leadership of God. And every time the wind of God began to blow and we started to see some things change and some things move, somebody tore up the sails and threw down the anchor. And we, when Jesus comes back, do not want to be in the clubhouse. We want to be out in the field. And so, as a whole, all after ten years of trying, they said... Y'all go have your fun. You have your clubhouse. And they started a whole new church in that town in the hopes that this could be a church that follows the Lord. Some of those people in that church in Laodicea probably left. Sometimes that has to happen. I'm not encouraging it, but sometimes God will say, I want you to be somewhere else. It could be like Tozer said. A bunch of proselytes making new proselytes. Mm-hmm. And as they as they teach away from Scripture, it gets worse and worse and worse until the church becomes spiritually dead. When the Constitution and bylaws supersedes the Word of God, there's problems. There's problems. Let me pray for us. Father, again, I I thank You for this opportunity to, to teach and to have You teach me as well as we open Your Word. And Lord, I thank You for what You're doing here. Lord, I thank You that we've been able to take the time slowly to just kind of chew our way through the first uh, part of this book. There's so much more where things are going to really start to uh, escalate as we continue to read further. And, and as we read what's coming up in this book, we're going to see a lot of things lining up in our world. And Lord, you're going to be showing us that the time is very close for your return. But Lord, for right now, there's no accident that the first part of this book was written to the churches. And it's here for us as well. Lord, some of uh, Some of us in here are like the Ephesian church. and We're doing the right stuff, but we're not doing it out of love relationship anymore. We're just doing it out of obligation and duty. And you call us to repent. Some of us are like the next church you spoke to, allowing compromise to creep in. And Lord, you're telling us to not let that happen and to repent and come back to you. Uh, Lord, some of us are maybe even being a part of a church that's not only allowing compromise, but the compromise is becoming doctrine and being taught in our churches. Or maybe uh, we've been teaching it, but you call us in love and say, please, repent. Repent. Come back to me. Some of us, Lord, are being faithful and you just say, hang on a little bit longer. I've left you an open door. Hang on a little bit longer. I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here that's in the Laodicean condition, that they have been following human tradition and the principles of this world or fine-sounding arguments instead of the truth of your word, 
something someone has taught later on that really doesn't line up with your truth. Father, I pray that they will hear you call out to them in love, knocking on the door, saying, I want to know you. I want to eat with you and you with me. I want to have fellowship with you. And Father, may they trust you as their Savior. May they say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm separated because of my sin, but I believe that you are God. I believe you died for my sin, and my whole life is now based in you. Lord, if there's anybody here today that needs to trust you as their Savior, may they please not leave this building tonight without getting that settled. Lord, some of us are dealing with issues, and your word is starting to show us that maybe some of the things we believe don't really aren't really in your word. And Lord, help us to have the boldness to deal with what needs to be done to line up our lives right with you. We believe in you. We trust in you as our Savior, but uh, we've been led astray by some false teaching. Lord, if that's anybody here, may we be willing by the power of your Spirit to make the bold steps that need to be made to realign ourselves with you and your word. Lord, I thank you for the fact that your Spirit is calling out to all of us in this room. Some of us from outside, some from within, but you're calling us in love. You want the best for us. And you want us to experience life and life more abundantly. I pray that for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.